We're going to look in Daniel chapter 2 this morning. Uh, those of you here for the first time, uh, we're in the middle of a series I'm calling uh, the Times and Seasons, Times and Seasons. And today we're going to look at the time of kings, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20. Let's all stand together as we reverence the reading of God's Word. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with Him. May God bless the reading of His Word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. Uh, this is the last message we'll have in this series on the times and seasons. Remember, it's based in the ancient book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, uh, where the Bible says to everything there is a season and a time uh, to every purpose under heaven. Uh, for the purposes of our series, we've defined the season as a collection of times. We have certain incidents, things that happen to us in life, and when we collect those together, we're going through a season, a season. Uh, but this is something that the Bible mentions several times, and we've tried to look from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 to several of the other passages in Scripture, uh, almost all of them to where that expression is found, the times and the season. And it brings us today uh, to Daniel chapter 2 and our consideration of this time. God is the one, Daniel says, uh, who changes the times and the seasons, and he removes kings and raises up kings. Uh, now this is one of those times, if I, if I wasn't someone committed to biblical exposition, I might would have just taken that out of there and told you that God, you know, is the one that changes times and seasons. And no matter what season you're going in, God can change that season. Now that's the truth this morning, okay? But that's not what this passage is all about. And we're going to see that God has framed that discussion of this particular time and season around the establishment of kings, that God is the one who determines what king is on the throne, what governmental leader is in that position of national leadership. God is the one who raises up kings and removes kings he changes their times and season. And you're going to see, I hope, as the message develops today, uh, what an incredible uh, a scene that this statement is made here in Daniel chapter 2. Now, the book of Daniel is written around the time when Israel had suffered an unspeakable tragedy. A nation had been conquered by an invading nation. The armies of Babylon had swept across the land of Israel like a flood. Everything was destroyed. All of their wealth was confiscated. Who did not die in the war? Ended up slaves in Babylon. Some became field hands. Ezekiel the prophet was one of those. He was working in the field by the river Shavar when God appeared to him in Babylon. Daniel and his three friends, uh, Azariah, Shadrach, and Meshach, or we call them Azariah, rather Hananiah and Mishael, we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'll get it right just in a moment. Uh, they were Daniel's three friends. They were slaves in the palace. 
and they were working and helping in governmental and management positions. Daniel was quickly recognized because he was a prophet. And he became part of what will be called the wise men in Daniel chapter 2, but which later would become known as the famous Magi. Now, if you'll see Magi, M-A-G-I, you understand that it's uh, part of the components of our word magic. And uh, that doesn't mean that Daniel was a sorcerer or a magician. Uh, but this was a group of men who had special knowledge. Some of them uh, did indeed work in the magic arts, but some of them uh, were people who had uh, a special gifts of discernment. And uh, they became kind of uh, the advisors to the king. Daniel was a prophet of the Most High God. And like Joseph before him, who was a slave to an evil king, Pharaoh, and he became those second only to him. So it would play out in Daniel's life as a slave to King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he would end up being second only to him in authority in Babylon. The book of Daniel is in many ways to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. In fact, uh, you really can't understand the book of Revelation without reading and studying the book of Daniel because a lot of what uh, you see in the book of Revelation is actually developed to, for us and spelled out and began in the book of Daniel. God would use this amazing prophet, though he would live and die in a foreign land, to give incredible messages relating to the future of the world. These amazing revelations were given to Daniel in the midst of his everyday life. By contrast, John the Revelator was isolated on the island of Patmos, away from everything. And God uh, put him in the spirit, he says, in the Lord's day. And in, that, in the spirit then, he was able uh, to see those incredible revelations that we find in that book that carries that exact name, the revelation. But Daniel, Daniel never stopped his everyday life. He was in the palace. He couldn't just go on a sabbatical. He couldn't just end up isolated somewhere. He had, he had to serve the king. And in the midst of his service, God was showing him incredible things. The prophecy that is before you today is one of the most famous in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 2. Uh, if you've ever heard of the expression, uh, somebody has feet of clay, it is built right here. It comes out of the book of Daniel. It referred, we use it to describe a person who, though they are uh, very powerful, uh, they have some character flaw that's going to be their downfall. And that's exactly what we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 2. It is built around the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king though he was, it's built around a dream that he had. And so we'll use that as our starting point for the message today. We'll notice the dream of the king. Now I'm going to have to read a lot of passages for you this morning. I'll read them quickly. I'm going to talk fast so y'all listen fast, okay? <clears throat> as fast as I can for an old South Arkansas boy. Here we go. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. He had what we'd call a recurring dream. And the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. From this point on in Daniel, all the way up through the end of chapter 7, uh, the book of Daniel was written not in Hebrew, but it was written in Aramaic. God had a message to the Gentile rulers of the world. 
and he wrote it in their own language, Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll give the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me in its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Did I mention that King Nebuchadnezzar was not a very nice fellow? Uh, he was a wicked, vicious, and vindictive man. He was full of pride and full of himself. He thought he was the greatest king that had ever been and the greatest ruler that had ever lived would ever live. Later he would say in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, the king spoke saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times, that seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. You see, in a real way, the dream that he was having in chapter 2 is going to play out in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar was full of himself. That was his fatal flaw. He thought his kingdom was about him and his power and his greatness. He didn't know or didn't care that God had established the nation of Babylon. God had set up that kingdom and he had set it up in order to teach his people Israel a lesson. And he would use them then to conquer the nation and bring them into a time of judgment. It's not this mighty Babylon that I have built. God said, no. No. Listen, it doesn't matter today if it's a king or a president. If his heart is lifted up with pride, it can and almost certainly will lead to his ruin and often the ruin of the nation he leads. Now, just because I'm wearing a blue tie today, don't jump to any conclusions here. Uh, politically speaking, I, I'm a very proud independent, and that leaves me capable then of preaching to both sides, and I will. It doesn't matter whether it's blue or red or who it is. Any nation, anywhere, led by anybody, if that man allows himself to lift, be lifted up with pride, then the Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That means the ruler's greatest threat is not some opposition party. The really, ruler's greatest threat uh, is not uh, a liberal news media. The ruler's greatest threat is not fake news. Uh-uh. The liberal's greatest threat is his own heart. The leader's greatest threat, rather, is his own heart. If he's lifted up with pride, that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He forgot. He didn't know. That God is the one who determines times and seasons. And He puts kings on the throne. And He can remove them from it. 
Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. And when he wakes up, he, he apparently has had this a lot. And every time he has it, he wakes up and he can't go back to sleep. He calls in his highest wise men and he puts them to the test. Tell me the dream and the interpretation. And he claims to have forgotten it. And maybe he had, but he remembered enough about it that he could tell if these guys were faking. And so he demands of them, you tell me what I dreamed and tell me what it means. And if you can tell me what I dreamed, then I will believe you when you tell me what the dream means. But of course, all the wise men that he had could not do such a thing. In fact, they would say a little bit later, uh, it is not uh, with men, verse 11, uh, it is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Verse 10, they said, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king this matter. We don't know what the problem is. That's what all of his wise men said. And because they did not know what the problem was, then they could not figure out what the solution was. It makes a lot of sense when you think about it. They were powerless to solve the problem because they didn't know what it was. Well, the Magi, then of the king, the Magi had, had failed him. And so true to his word... He dispatched the palace guard to kill all the wise men. And by the way, that would include Daniel and his three friends. And so the king's dream then becomes Daniel's dilemma. And when the captain of the guard shows up, Arioch, uh, he had gone out to kill all the wise men of Babylon, verse 14. And then he said, answered to them and said to him, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch made the decision known to Daniel, and so Daniel went in and asked the king. Obviously, the king had a lot of respect for Daniel, or he'd have killed him when he appeared at the door, had it done. He asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. So what do you do next? Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions that they might seek the mercies of God concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. What Daniel do? He called a prayer meeting. <laughs> what a novel concept. When he saw the threat to himself and his friends and that they were understood they were facing a problem that no man could solve, he knew it was time to call on God. Can you imagine what would happen if the United States Senate tomorrow would call a prayer meeting and every one of them got down on their knees at the altar before they got started? Can you imagine such a thing? You say, well, it'll never happen. I know it won't happen, but just imagine with me. <laughs> Indulge me for a second. Imagine. I guarantee you one thing, it would not hurt. God only knows what it would do. Remember I said people don't know what the problem is. They can't possibly know what the solution is. Daniel knew what the problem was. There wasn't a man on earth that could deal with this. And therefore, our solution has to come from God above. As soon as he called on the Lord, 
the Lord responded. How did he respond? He let Daniel dream the same dream the king had dreamed. What a neat solution. But along with the dream that he gave to Daniel, he also gave it to the interpretation. And so by giving this dream to the king and then giving it to Daniel, and then Daniel would get the interpretation God was establishing in no uncertain terms before that Gentile nation, the validity of what was taking place. No mere human could take credit for this. This whole thing was going to end up in the congressional record of ancient Babylon. Think about it. I mean, they would write it down. This is it. King had a dream. Nobody could tell him what it was. He's going to kill all the wise men, but one of them stood up. His name was Daniel, and he said, I've got the dream, and I've had an interpretation. He said, well, as soon as he got it, what did he do? Did he run into the king? No. <laughs> Verse 20 through 23, you can read it. Uh, he said, uh, uh, verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And Daniel, the same one who had a prayer meeting, <laughs> now he's having a praise service. They'll let the king wait a little while. <laughs> it's time to praise God, and he does. And I'm glad he did, because that gives us our text. Wisdom and might are His. And he changes the times and the seasons. He reveals deep and secret things. Thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you. Well, the king had a dream. That dream then became Daniel's dilemma. But Daniel responded with a prayer meeting. <laughs> then he had a worship service and praised God. And now, let's see the response that God gave him. The divine response. Daniel would go in and report this to the king in verse 28, but there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. There is a God in heaven. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. Some translation have that in the latter days, and that's true. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. In other words, God has shown me this for our sake uh, so that we'd be saved alive and for your sake so that you would know what this is all about. And we might add in, <laughs> I sure am glad he wrote it all down because that makes it come across being for our sake too. And it is. You, O king, he says, verse 31, were watching and behold a great image. It was a statue made like unto a man. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its bellies and belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together 
and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, when Daniel begins to explain this to him, he's going to determine, going to find out, the king uh, is going to learn that the head and shoulders of gold represented himself in his own kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. The chest and arms were of silver, and that would represent the kingdom that would replace him, the kingdom of the Medo-Persians. After him would come another kingdom, uh, a kingdom uh, of, of brass, and the legs uh, then were made of that, the thighs and, and, and the torso made of brass, and that would rec represent the Greek kingdom uh, led by Alexander. The lower legs and feet of iron mixed with ceramic or fired clay would represent the Romans that would come after them. Now, the image presents an overview of what Jesus referred to in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24. He called it the times of the Gentiles. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are still living today under the power and the authority of this vision that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar first, then gave to Daniel, along with the interpretation. We're still today living in anticipation of the fullness of this great vision. The times of the Gentiles. We don't have the time this morning to consider these in all in detail, but reading this passage is like reading a world history book, only Daniel wrote it ahead of time. The Babylonian Empire, as great as it was, would, would indeed fall victim to Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And the Medo-Persians would take their place, primarily led by Darius, the most famous example. The Persian Empire speaks, of course, of Iran today. It would be a Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, by the way, that's in Iraq today. Uh, to be replaced by the Greeks under Alexander the Great, who gave the world a common language. His kingdom, though, too, would fall to the Romans and the Roman Empire would diverge itself into iron and clay with ten toes, and actually that is ceramic clay. It's fired clay, not uh, malleable clay, uh, but ceramic clay. And you know that iron and clay uh, don't mix. In fact, the Bible says it, verse 41, Wherefore you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. Now, though we can look back very clearly and identify those four major kingdoms that Daniel was talking about in his vision, the latter part of this is, has been a puzzle for us, and we have yet to completely solve it. For a long time, when the European Union got started, we thought, man, that's it. There's the ten nations. But, of course, there's more than ten nations in the European Union, although one less now. One less. One less. 
I think one of the big things we can see in this passage was that God would describe how that this empire would be established and there would be successors to that. But the empire, that last one, would never really go away. It would move here, move there, move around, take different forces. He described how these nations would be there, but they would never really join together because iron and ceramic don't mix. And there's a big building in New York City uh, and it houses what's known as the United Nations, but the nations are not united. Iron and clay don't mix. This is the days of the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles as Jesus described them. And though I can't explain to you all of the things relating to those kingdoms, we do know that there have been many manifestations of that last kingdom. There was a time when uh, the governmental structure was replaced by a religious structure, and then it split between the West and the East. You studied all this in world history. We know about some of the kingdoms that have developed within this, and one in one part and another in other parts, but all still in that same basic geographical era, and it has dominated area, and it has dominated world events ever since. We know about things like the Ottoman Empire. We know about the British Empire. Uh, we know about the, the empire of the papacy. Uh, we know about how that things kind of divided between West and East and Constantinople and Rome and the German Empire and the hordes that came from the North. What are we seeing? In a general way, I think, we can see, although God knows all the specifics, in a general way, we can see those kingdoms continuing. The iron mixed with clay, somewhat with the strength, but very fragile. Nations have risen and fell. Kingdoms have risen and fell. They've all proven to be incredibly fragile. Though we might wonder about the interpretation of all those ten kingdoms, and listen, Daniel's going to be talking a lot more about them before this book's over. You can read on ahead and you'll learn more. But for our purposes this morning, let's just notice the mountain, that he saw a stone cut out of a mountain without hands, and it would smite that image at its weak point. And it would all come crashing down. And there's absolutely no question about what that stone cut out of the mountain without hands is. <laughs> that is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is a stone. He's called that over and over again. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Jesus is the stone. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. Behold, uh, quoting Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16. So you know it's not just the Old Testament. Simon Peter quoted it again. Jesus is the stone. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42, Jesus said, The stone which the builders rejected is now become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. Jesus is the stone. 
And what Daniel was describing was designed to teach us a couple of things. Number one, compared to gold, silver, bronze, iron, and even ceramic, just a common old rock doesn't seem like much, does it? <laughs> no wonder Jesus has spoken of the one that is despised of men, despised by the builders, and yet He is the one that is given a name that is above every name. God has highly exalted Him. And when it comes to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, then He tells us that it is going to destroy all of the other kingdoms. Before He was born, the angel Gabriel would say to Mary, He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of His kingdom there shall be no end. But it didn't just start there. You can go all the way back to the book of Job, but I don't have this in there. I just thought about it. Job said a long time ago, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand when? At the latter day upon the earth. My Redeemer's alive, and he's going to stand upon this earth. And it was true in Job's day, and it was true in others. Other kings will rise and fall, not this one. Of his kingdom, there shall be no end. That's your king. That's mine. Now, if Jesus Christ is given this everlasting kingdom, we might well ask the question this morning, <laughs> why didn't he get on with it? I mean, I, I, I never preach a funeral that I don't look forward to the time when we're going to all go out together. I don't, I mean, we're all going home. This one at a time stuff is tough. But one of these days, we're all going to go together. We wonder, well, let's get on with it. What are we waiting for? Well, that's a good question. 2 Peter chapter 3 gives us the answer. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, and he's just been talking about the return of Christ. Wherefore, brethren, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of Him in peace. Why? Because King Jesus has got everything under control. We may think that the world is falling apart, but we know that the plan and purposes of God are going to play out exactly as He has said. But you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, blameless in account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. What are you waiting for? Well, I'm glad he didn't come a couple of hundred years ago because I'd have never been born. <laughs> that sounds a little odd to you. I know it. I don't know any other way to say it. The long-suffering of our God is salvation. That means that you've had a chance to live, to get married, have kids, lead them to Christ, I hope. The long-suffering of God is salvation. Until Jesus comes, we still have the gospel. We still have the Great Commission. We can still share that great truth of salvation because we live in a world that is just as clueless as the wise men were in Daniel's day. They don't know what the problem is. And because they don't know what the problem is, they don't know what the solution is either. 
I heard a story. It's a, it's a make-believe story. I know it is. Because it describes a dad who was shopping for a Christmas gift for his kids. We all know they made that one up. Amen. Amen. So here's this dad out shopping for a gift for his, for his kids right up front. Then we know it's not a true story, and it's not. But the clerk in the story asked, uh, said they have a new gift. And they said it's the kind of puzzle that can't be put together. No matter how hard they try, it cannot be solved. And the dad said, well, what kind of toy is that? And the clerk said it's one to prepare your kids for living in today's world. Uh, there's all kinds of problems in this world that I don't have a clue how to solve. And neither does anybody else on this earth. But thank God I know the one who does know how to solve. And who will. And one day that mountain is going to strike the kingdoms of men. And they're all going to be ground down to powder to the point that you can't even see anything that would be even a remnant. All those kingdoms will be gone. And that one rock will grow into a great mountain that covers the whole earth. And Jesus Christ will rule this world for a thousand years, the Bible says. And the good news is, <laughs> you and I get to reign with Him. You and I get to reign with Him. But that's only true, you see, if you bow the knee to heaven's King. How did Nebuchadnezzar respond? Well, read chapter 3. He went home and said, well, I'll fix this. I'll just build an image and make it all of gold. All the way down, head to toe. No feet of clay on this one. I'll make it all of gold. And I'll issue a decree that everybody in the world has to bow down and worship. Wow. You see who Nebuchadnezzar was a picture of, don't you? The man of sin, the beast, false priest, that's him. But you and I are among those who recognize heaven's king and we bow before him. Has there come that time in your life where you realize that you were a sinner, you had a problem you couldn't solve, and that problem was your sin problem? But oh, thank God Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and mine. And he gives out a simple message. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you done that today? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you followed him in baptism? Are you living for him? Long ago, the Bible said, the time is short. <laughs> if it was short then, <laughs> it's a lot shorter now you got a decision to make for Christ, you need to make it. Let's stand together.